Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. In 2017, the evangelist Billy Graham was all over the news, but not for any of the reasons you might think. In fact, the reason he was in the news at the time had very little to do with him. It it had everything to do with a rule bearing his name, the now infamous Billy Graham rule. In 2017, it had been discovered that at least a few conservative male politicians were operating by this Billy Graham rule. The rule, at least according to them, dictated that they not dine alone with women they weren't married to, some of them even refusing to attend events, public events, where alcohol was served without their wives present with them. In addition to politicians, several Christian celebrities are said to live by this Billy Graham rule, not to mention countless pastors and ministry leaders across the country. Uh, I personally know quite a few men who have put into place policies for their own interactions with women, at least loosely based on this rule. Some of them have even taken it a step further, saying that they won't ride in a car alone with a woman, they won't take a one-on-one meeting with a woman in their office, or even text another woman they're not married to without including their own wife or the woman's husband on the text thread. And generally, the reason given for this rule, or these rules, is to help guard against sexual sin and infidelity, which we should note is a really noble goal. But as you might guess, the Billy Graham rule has some critics. A lot of people say that it paints women as something like immoral seductresses, it objectifies and sexualizes friendships with women in really unhelpful ways. Uh, In workplace settings, it, it can also have the effect of excluding women from conversations where their voices might be needed or helpful. It can also prevent women from receiving needed counsel or counseling from their pastors if it is practiced too strictly. And I think all of those can be warranted critiques depending on how the rule is practiced. I do think it's worth pointing out, though, that Billy Graham never set forward this rule as something that all men at all times should follow. It was his way, personally, of abiding by the biblical teaching for public Christian leaders to be above reproach, especially when he and others with him were were spending extended amounts of time away from their families on the road doing evangelism work. So I've got to think that Billy Graham would be just a little bit confused at how some have taken his very specific principle for traveling evangelists and applied it far more broadly and aggressively than he ever intended it. In fact, some people take this rule so far that they don't even seem like they're following the Billy Graham rule anymore. It's turned into something altogether different. Some of them are following what we might call the Billy Crystal rule. In the famous film, When Harry Met Sally, which I won't even pretend the bulk of our church has seen (laughs) because it came out in the 80s. In that movie, when Harry met Sally, 
Billy Crystal's character famously says to Meg Ryan's character, quote, men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. He goes on to tell her, essentially, in this conversation, that every man she thinks that she is friends with secretly just wants to sleep with her. It's quite a depressing conversation in the movie. But I would argue that that view of relationships, the, the one held by Harry in the movie, is actually what is behind a lot of people's thinking on friendships between men and women today, whether they get it from the movie or not. And particularly the belief held by some that men and women cannot be friends with each other at all without it turning into something else. But I do want you to see this morning that that, that belief doesn't actually come from some prudish, antiquated belief that all women are temptresses. That belief doesn't actually come from the Bible at all. It comes from a secular, hypersexualized, Freudian view of humanity. In this view, if a man and a woman develop any type of friendship with each other, however innocent it may seem at the beginning, it's only a matter of time before they end up in bed together, or bare minimum, until somebody catches feelings. So today, this morning, I want us to ask, is that view of friendships between men and women accurate? And more practically, is that approach towards friendships, just avoiding friendships with the opposite sex altogether, is that a biblical approach for followers of Jesus? Is it really true that men and women have to largely avoid platonic relationships with each other just to guard themselves against temptation? Or is there a better approach out there? You know, I I can't help but think that some of Jesus' own interactions with women wouldn't have passed many people's strict moral standards for those interactions today. One of the first stories in the Gospel of John is a time where Jesus was alone in a public place with a woman he was not married to. And not only does he not flee the scene immediately, he initiates a lengthy conversation with her a conversation that eventually broaches the topic of her love life. And it's worth noting that in having this conversation with this woman in the Gospel of John, Jesus crosses not only strict gender barriers in place at that culture at that time, but also ethnic barriers that were in place at that culture at that time. Jesus once allows a woman of questionable reputation to wash his feet at a dinner party in a way that was deeply inappropriate to the religious authorities of his day. In fact, one of the religious authorities present for this interaction says that if Jesus would have known who this woman was and what type of reputation she had had, that Jesus would have never let her anywhere near him. And yet Jesus allows it to happen just the same. And then he holds this woman up as an example of what it looks like to understand the forgiveness and acceptance of God in contrast with the religious authorities who were present. Jesus evidently had deep friendships with many of the women disciples, namely Mary and Martha. 
He went over to their house for dinner. He consoled them and wept with them when their brother Lazarus died. He endured Martha's anger at him when he did not return from afar in time to prevent Lazarus from dying. Women followed Jesus as his disciples, many of them financially providing for his ministry out of their own means. Jesus healed women, interacted with women. He dialogued with women about God and theology and the power of God All of these things, by the way, would have been far more unusual for a man in his time to do than they are in any religious setting today. And yet Jesus does them all. So how do we pursue opposite-sex friendships like Jesus did? How do we create these platonic friendships within the church among followers of Jesus that look a little bit less like the Billy Crystal rule and look a little bit more like the life of Jesus. That's what I want us to get into this morning. Now, briefly here, before we turn to our passage, I do want to at least acknowledge something that is related to what we're going to cover this morning. I want to acknowledge that not everyone in this room is attracted to the opposite sex. Some of you are attracted to the same sex. But for the purposes of this teaching this morning, I still think almost everything that we're going to say applies to you as well. It might just apply in slightly different ways. Does that make sense? So I'm going to trust that as we go through the teaching, even though I might use the term opposite sex friendships, I'm going to trust you, if that's you, to sort of transpose the ideas to make them make sense in your life. Does that make sense? Just felt like that was important to acknowledge as we go along. What we're talking about this morning is how to pursue friendships with people where there is at least the potential of romantic or sexual attraction. That's where we're getting into this morning. Okay, so we're going to kick things off in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you want to turn there, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The book of 1 Timothy, if, if you're newer to the Bible is a letter written by a guy named Paul to a young protege of his in the ministry named Timothy. Timothy was one of the leaders at a church in the city of Ephesus back in the day, and Paul is giving Timothy instruction on a lot of different things in this letter. But one of them is how he should interact with other followers of Jesus in that local church. And here's what he says to Timothy in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We'll sort of use this as our anchor this morning. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That's our passage for this morning. Now, Here's why we are going to spend the majority of our time on a Sunday morning just in two verses of the Bible. Because while this passage that we just read is very short and seems relatively straightforward, it is deceivingly difficult to apply, as anyone who has attempted to apply it has figured out. On the one hand, Paul lays out what seems like a pretty simple idea, that men and, the women, men and women in the community of faith should treat one another as family. We should treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. That's simple enough of a concept to understand, right? Now, I'll let you debate amongst yourselves on where the cutoff is between older and younger. I want no part of that debate. 
But even with that said, with that considered, this seems like a pretty simple idea, right? Treat other followers of Jesus like family. In fact, if you've been around our church very long at all, you have probably heard us talk about this idea a lot. It's really important to us. We say often, just like I did a few moments earlier in the service, that church is not ultimately a hobby, it's not an event, it's not a building, or even an organization that distributes goods and services. The church at its core is a family, a group of people that we're called to belong to, much like many of us belong to our biological families. So Paul, using that understanding as a foundation, says to Timothy in this letter, you and other people in the church at Ephesus should treat one another in precisely that way. You should interact with one another as family. Now, that is likely where it starts to get complicated for some of us, because for a lot of us in the room, the word family does not bring up fond memories at all. Some of us have been hurt by our family, mistreated by our family, maybe even abused by members of our family. So some of us hear what Paul says in this passage and just instinctively think to ourselves, actually, Paul, I'd rather not be family with people in the church. That doesn't sound desirable at all to me, in fact. But thankfully, Paul clarifies what he means by treat one another as family. And he says it at the very end of these verses. He says, we should treat one another as family with, notice the phrase at the very end, absolute purity. Now, I would guess that that word purity is also another word that some of us have mixed feelings about. Here's what Paul means by it, though. To treat one another with absolute purity is to relate to one another in a way that is unstained, uncorrupted, and uninfluenced by sin. That's what we're talking about. And here in this passage, he doesn't just mean sexual sin. He means all kinds of sin. Selfishness, bitterness, resentment, suspicion, distrust, dishonesty. We could go on down the line, right? Sin impacts our relationships with each other in a variety of different ways. But what Paul is envisioning here in this passage is that men and women should relate to one another within the church in such a way that is absent of all of that sin, or at least in a way that aims to be absent of all of that. That in his mind is what it means to treat one another as family with absolute purity. Uh, It means not concealing our actual motives towards one another. It means not being duplicitous. It means we're not hoping to get something out of the relationship with the other person, whether that's sexual, romantic, attention, or otherwise. We're not assuming the worst of the other person in the friendship. We're not operating out of a suspicion that they're actually flirting with us or seducing us or fighting for power against us. It means when a brother or a sister comes to talk to us, we assume that they are talking to us because we are family, and that's what family does. They talk to each other. In fact, to me, this passage seems to have a self-correcting feature built right into it. So it says both treat one another as family and also treat one another with absolute purity. Here's why I think that's helpful. No doubt about it, there are churches out there that use familial language 
as cover for impure behavior. They'll say things like, just trust us, or let's handle this in-house, or even, hey, we're family here, when they have objectively proven themselves to be untrustworthy. They can use familial language as cover for sinful things. But do you see how doing that actually violates the second half of the verse? That would be to treat one another not with absolute purity. We can't use the first part of this passage in a way that violates the second half of the passage. But then, on the other hand, people will sometimes go a very different direction with verses like these. Some people will focus heavily on the absolute purity piece of the passage and say, well, since we need to treat one another with absolute purity, the best thing for us to do is to just mostly avoid friendships with the opposite sex altogether. We'll acknowledge one another in passing, we'll be cordial with each other, but actual friendships between the sexes seems like it could lead to impurity, and so we better just steer clear of those friendships altogether. But the problem is that then we've ignored the first part of the verse. That we should treat one another like brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And surely, when Paul said, treat one another like family, he didn't mean mostly avoid one another. That would be a very confusing way of him communicating that idea. So when seen correctly, I actually think this passage from 1 Timothy guards against both errors. Treating each other like family shouldn't mean that we take advantage of those friendships because that wouldn't be absolute purity. And treating one another with absolute purity shouldn't necessitate that we avoid one another because that wouldn't be treating them like brothers and sisters. In the church, we should treat one another like family in absolute purity. So here's where I want to go for the rest of our time together today. I want to offer to you a sentence, one sentence, that summarizes how I think we should apply this concept from 1 Timothy chapter 5. The sentence I'll give you has two parts in it, just like the passage does, and we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking each part at length. Here's the sentence in its entirety. If you like writing stuff down, this could be a good thing to jot down. Here's the sentence. Men and women need friendships with each other while being honest about sin and temptation. Men and women need friendships with each other while being honest about sin and temptation in those friendships. So let's spend some time on each half of that sentence. First, men and women need friendship with each other. Sometimes when we talk about friendship between men and women in the church, I will hear pushback from some people along the lines of, okay, maybe, but is that really necessary? In other words, given the inherent danger of those types of friendships, is it really worth it to pursue them? And, and that's an understandable question. I get where it's coming from, absolutely. But I want to explain why I think the answer to that question is an undeniable yes. I'll give you a few reasons why. First, there's the very important reason that we've already mentioned today, because the Bible commands it in 1 Timothy 5. That, to me, feels like a pretty important reason, right? The Bible commands us to treat one another like family. But I'll also give you a couple practical reasons. I think the answer is yes, it is still worth it. First, I think men and women need friendship with each other because it provides a compelling alternative to our hypersexualized society. 
Our world teaches us that any relationship between men and women is inherently sexually motivated. So, so just think about it real quick. When is the last time that you saw a TV show or a movie where a man and a woman had a vibrant friendship with each other and there wasn't some sort of romantic or sexual undertone behind it? Those movies exist, but they're few and far between, right? The lie that we are told is that any relationship like that is somehow related to or motivated by sex. Women, according to Billy Crystal in the movie, if you think you have guy friends, apparently that is only true because they want to sleep with you, or at least that's what the world would have us believe. But if that is the default belief in the world, imagine with me if the church could become a compelling alternative to that. A place where women are valued, not because men are attracted to them, but because they are co-image bearers of God with men. Imagine with me if, the ch- if women in the church felt acknowledged and known and valued by men in ways that have absolutely nothing to do with their physical appearance. Imagine with me if women in the church valued their friendships with men, not because those men are future potential spouses, but because they are trustworthy brothers to them. Uh, Imagine if, if when men and women came into our community here at City Church, it became normative for them to trust and not become suspicious of one another. Can you imagine some of the soul-level healing that could happen in a community like that? Another reason I think men and women need friendship with each other is because it gives us a fuller glimpse of God's character. So remember back with me to week two of this series that we've been in, where we said that because men and women are both made in the image of God, we need both men and women to fully see what God is like. So wouldn't it make sense then that friendships with the opposite sex would help us get a fuller picture of what God is like? As men and women, we should be able to discuss the scriptures together in mixed gendered settings. As men and women, we should be able to have honest discussions in our life groups about our discipleship to Jesus in mixed gendered settings. Now, Are there some things that are probably better to discuss in separate gendered settings? Absolutely. But in general, we should be able to have those conversations. It shouldn't be that we don't know how to talk about our relationship with Jesus when the opposite sex is present. Because the ability to do that and the ability to have those conversations with each other actually gives us a fuller picture of God and what he's like. That is another reason that we need these types of friendships. So let me just give you a few rapid-fire suggestions on how to cultivate these friendships. If if this is a new idea to you, maybe these will help. Um, If you're in a life group, maybe when your life group catches up on life and discusses the teaching, consider having that discussion together with with men and women in the same room, at least on a semi-regular basis. If you don't do that already, Uh, it probably doesn't make sense to do that every single week as a life group, but make it a regular rhythm for you. Make it something intentional. Uh, When your life group is hanging out 
with one another. Try not to do the thing where all the men gravitate towards one room and all the women gravitate towards another room. Try your best not to do that. Mix it up a little bit. Uh, Outside of group settings, married couples, look for ways to do double or triple dates with other couples in your life on a regular basis. Look for ways to do group hangouts where single people and married people are present. Single people, when you want to go do something as a part of a group, don't just text all people of your gender. Invite men and women to wherever you're going. Now, if you've never done any of these things, uh, it might feel a little bit awkward at first, and I want you to know that's okay because it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it to create environments where these friendships can happen. We need friendship with each other in God's family. Okay, second part of the sentence. We said men and women need friendship with each other while being honest about sin and temptation in those relationships. While being honest about sin and temptation. So even with everything that we've just said about men and women pursuing friendships with each other, should we be diligent about guarding against unhealthy attraction and sexual sin within those relationships? Absolutely we should. Uh, married men in the room. If after this teaching, I see you out at lunch every day with a woman one-on-one who you're not married to, and you tell me you're just applying the sermon, I'm going to throw a flag on that. (laughs) Fair? Uh, Single people in the room. If I find out that after this morning, you set up three or four different quasi-dates with people of the opposite sex just so you can practice being better siblings to each other. I'm going to have some questions for you, okay? So I'm not talking about any of that. My point isn't that we should be willfully naive about our friendships with the opposite sex, not at all. We shouldn't operate in a state of denial about our own hearts, pretending that a relationship is platonic when it is obvious to one or both parties that it's not platonic. Uh, Married people especially have to be conscious of this. We should not be pouring gasoline on situations that are knowingly dangerous to us in our marriage. In fact, I know men who have said to other men in our church, hey, this woman that we both know is attractive to me, and if you see me regularly trying to hang out with her or flirt with her, you need to call me out on it. I know women in our church that have said the same thing. I think that's really wise for followers of Jesus to do. I think single people have to be really clear about their intentions with each other so that they don't end up in these weird, ambiguous situations that tend to hurt everybody as a result. So a a couple quick tips for you if you're single. Uh, If you are asking someone out on a date, say that it's a date. I had no idea that would get an applause, but it struck a nerve. I like it. Uh, Say it's a date, like by using the word date. That makes it really obvious when you do that. If that's what it is, say that's what it is. If it's not a date, don't make it feel like a date. And it probably doesn't need to be one-on-one if the goal is just to get to know the other person. Um, 
I, and let me just add this on that note with the whole one-on-one -on -one thing. Um, I will just point out, you don't have to hang out one-on-one -on -one with someone to cultivate a friendship with them. In fact, that's probably a good rule of thumb. If the only way that you know how to be friends with someone of the opposite sex is to hang out with them one-on-one, -on -one, you might want to think a little more critically about what's motivating that friendship. Uh, additionally, if you ever find yourself only pursuing friendships with people that you find physically attractive, I think you should think more critically about that as well. I will give you a very indirect way to guard against sinful tendencies and opposite sex friendships. It's going to feel super random at first, but I don't think it's random at all. You ready for it? If you want healthy opposite sex friendships, do your absolute best to remove porn from your life. I think one thing that has done substantial damage to our ability to have platonic friendships is the prevalence of porn. Because think about this for a second. What does porn teach us to believe about other human beings? That they are objects that exist mainly for our pleasure. And porn teaches us <clears throat> that if people of the opposite sex are in the same place for any length of time, or for that matter, people of the same sex are in the same place for any length of time, porn teaches us that it's only a matter of time before they sleep together. Some of the more recent studies I've seen estimate that somewhere around 98% of men and 73% of women have viewed porn in the past six months. Do you think that that could be hurting our ability as a society to view opposite-sex friendships platonically? I sure would think so. So probably, for a lot of people, one of the most helpful things you could do would be to do whatever it takes to get porn out of your life. Put blocks on your device that you cannot change. Confess the struggle with it to your life group openly. Ask God to change your heart to not desire it in your life anymore. Whatever you need to do, as much as you are able, get porn out of your life. I would think that would go a long way towards helping us cultivate healthy platonic friendships with other people. So all of that to say there are certainly cautions and considerations that we could take in our friendships with the opposite sex. We should not be naive. We should th think critically about what is motivating these types of friendships. We should talk openly and frequently with our life groups about friendships where we don't think our motives are completely pure. All of that is healthy and necessary for followers of Jesus to do. Uh, for some of us in the room, there may be ways that we need to be honest with ourselves about sin and temptation in our interactions with the opposite sex. And for those attracted to the same sex, about the sin and temptation there. Some of us might even need to take stronger measures in these friendships to account for the particular struggles that we have. So, so someone who struggles with sex addiction is gonna have some particular considerations that they need to make in these friendships. Someone with a past marked by infidelity probably has some special considerations that they're gonna to need to make. Someone who is still working through the impact of past sexual abuse such that they feel unsafe around the opposite sex is probably gonna have some additional considerations that they need to make. 
People in these types of situations may have some preliminary work to do in order to get to a place where they can enjoy the gift of platonic friendships with the opposite sex. And if that's you, I want you to know it is okay for you to take extreme measures as a solution for a season while you do the work to address the underlying issues. That can be a very, very wise thing for you to do as a follower of Jesus. But I am saying that avoiding the opposite sex altogether should not be the default posture for us as followers of Jesus at all times. Let's get the help that we need to get to a healthier place, but let's not make the permanent solution to reject something that God actually intended for our good. The Bible says we should flee sexual immorality. Yes and amen to that. But listen, if every interaction you have with the opposite sex makes you have to flee sexual immorality, that's a much bigger problem than the friendship itself. Avoidance of the opposite sex is not the same thing as purity. So we started off today with one very simple and yet profoundly difficult instruction from the Bible. Treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters in absolute purity. So I want us to conclude by asking and answering one more question. Where does purity come from? Where does purity come from? We've established that it doesn't originate from avoidance of the opposite sex. While that can be a temporary strategy, it's not a long-term strategy. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, become pure in our interactions with each other? Look with me on the screen at 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So I want you to notice the logic in this verse. The assumption being made in 1 John 3 is that none of us, as we are, are pure. Not a single one of us, right? Otherwise, there would be no need for us to be purified in the language, in the language of this passage. Apparently, all of us are in need of being purified. So, so this idea that we sometimes hear that purity is something that we can perfectly achieve on our own by abstaining from friendships or abstaining from sexual sin or abstaining from sex altogether, all of that does miss the point just a little bit. Because even if you're one of the fortunate few who successfully abstains from sexual sin at all times, have you ever had other ulterior motives in a friendship? You ever been motivated to be friends with somebody for selfish purposes? You ever used friendship with somebody else to prop up your own reputation or your own sense of self-worth? You ever used someone else in a friendship as a means to an end? That, according to the Bible, is still impurity. So all of us, every single one of us in this room, have some amount of impurity in us as human beings. Purity, biblically speaking, is not really something we achieve. 
It's not something that we succeed or fail at. And even if it was, most of us in the room, including myself, have failed at it far more often than we've succeeded. So if we are going to become pure as God's people, it's not going to be something we arrive at in our own strength. It's going to have to be something we are given. And how does 1 John 3 say that we are given purity? Where does purity come from? According to the passage, it comes from Jesus, from from seeing Jesus, from beholding Jesus, and ultimately, it says in the passage, from hoping in Jesus. Now, as we've mentioned before here on Sundays many, many times, hope is a much stronger word in the Bible than it tends to be in our modern culture. When we talk about hope, we tend to mean wish. That's what we mean by the word. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope Tennessee still makes the college football playoffs. There's still hope. I'm just saying there's still hope the way that we use the word hope. But what we mean when we use the word hope is generally, I really want this to happen, but to be honest, I have no clue whether it will or not. That's how we use the word. And that's fine. It's not wrong for you to use the word that way. I think that's how most of us understand it. But just for us to know, when we're reading through the Bible and we come across the word hope, that's not what it means. The word hope in the Bible, and specifically the idea of hoping in Jesus, it means to have an expectation of something happening. It it means having a confidence that it will happen. It's not a wish, it's a trust. Do you hear the difference in those two words? Hoping in the Bible is a trust. So when 1 John 3 talks about us hoping in Jesus, it's talking about us having confidence in him. It's talking about a posture that says, Jesus, I trust you and I trust your will for my life. And so if you say something is good for me, I'll believe you that it's good for me. If you say something is bad for me, I trust you that it's bad for me. And and I trust that if you say that life works best a certain way, it really does work best that way. And specifically when it comes to purity, hoping in Jesus means that when he says his blood is enough to purify us, he means it. He can be trusted. That's a guarantee in the scriptures. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've succeeded or failed at, Jesus means that his blood is enough to purify us. And John says that that type of hope, that type of hope in Jesus is where purity actually comes from. Not from how successfully we are able to rid sin from our hearts at all times, not from our sexual history or lack thereof, not from how perfectly we execute male-female friendships or how innocent we are in those friendships. Purity comes from hoping in Jesus and trusting that whatever sin is there can and will be dealt with by the power of the cross. So when we come to the tables each and every Sunday and take communion, 
when we respond by going to the tables and remembering the, the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. This is precisely what we're proclaiming. This is what we're remembering. That, that we on our own are not pure. We can't achieve purity on our own. But Jesus is pure, and he can make us pure as we learn to hope in him. So this morning, can, can I just invite you to remember that he can make you pure? Can I invite you to realize that he, he wants to do that this morning? Can I invite you to know that he is good enough to do that and that he can be trusted to do that? I would love to pray for us as we enter into a time of response.